Voice of Fintech. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. And today we're talking to Christian from Lexer. He's a founder and a CEO of Lexer, which is a legal tech company. And we're going to talk about the key legal aspects that you should be aware of when you're trying to start your own business. Hello, Christian. How are you today? Thank you, Rudy, for having me. Very excited about this show. Doing very well. You founded your business, Lexer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Why did you start a legal tech business? And, you know, isn't that an oxymoron? Some people say to marry successfully a lawyer and the technology is mission impossible. So why did you think that you can accomplish it, though? Sure. I had a traditional career in law firms. I worked at law firms uh, here in Zurich and London before telling myself there must be a better way. Both a lot of the lawyers as well as a lot of the clients are not particularly happy with the status quo and the technology adoption in legal services is still very low. I told myself there must be an opportunity mm -hmm. to do something better here. We started Lexer about three and a half years ago with really the vision of providing next generation legal services to tech, fintech and digital companies. The challenge is, of course, where can you use technology effectively? And if you digitalize a bad process, you have a digitalized bad process. Right. We're also looking at what can we change in the way legal services are delivered and the processes can be improved that technology can actually make a higher impact. So far, still, what you see in the market is contract management, a little bit of document review, and then law firm management software that's starting to get a hold. And then what we believe is going to be the big thing is productization of legal. When you think about flight right, they took a very complex issue of getting your flight refund if your flight is delayed. Mm -hmm. And tailor that in the app so with a couple of clicks you can claim your flight refund from the company. And that is, in my view, one of the biggest success stories in legal tech. So what are a couple of examples of services that you provide to startups? So what we're looking at is where can we productize legal processes? Where do we have a repetition of tasks that we can standardize and then productize? And for startups, there's a couple of things like incorporation, setting up the early funding rounds, seed round, series A. That's always the same 10, 20 questions. Data protection is a big issue that's been in the forefront in the past couple of years in the minds of people and there we're productizing things because data protection compliance looks more or less the same for most companies. Mm -hmm. um, then there's trademark registrations, there are certain HR contracts that always look the same and that's where we're looking at the moment. We've launched a startup package recently, we've launched an employee stock option plan and phantom stock option plan package just a couple of weeks ago they launch a GDPR package and next up is going to be funding rounds and, and startup financing. So I wanted to find out a couple of key points that we can share with people when they're thinking about starting their own business. Of course, this is not the legal advice. You need to find your own lawyer, but we're just talking about lessons learned here, right? Mm -hmm. um, first one is when you want to start a business, people start to think about incorporating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they think that actually uh, that's an achievement in itself, which in a way it is, 
but uh, maybe it's not needed to spend all this money on setting up an AG or you know the joint stock company in English, mm-hmm. um, and maybe maybe it is a good time. So when is a good time or the right time to incorporate, and why would you do it, or change a different legal form? Just you know having a project on the side or something mm-hmm. like that on the weekends. There are two main advantages of incorporating. One is you protect your personal liability, and the other is the market takes you much more seriously if you have some sort of company around it. I still think many companies incorporate too early. I think they could still do a lot more of testing around is there actually a market for this platform or idea or whatever, and they could simply do a mock-up website and test it for a couple of months and get feedback before they decide to, yes, I'm going to try this and incorporate. I think there's a very little liability risk if you're going to test something for a couple of months with a simple website. Right. So even in the legal sphere, you should adopt a lean start methodology where you don't need a hundred thousand to to just uh, test an idea, right? Absolutely, because the costs that you're going to have of setting it up and then if it fails to liquidate again is quite high. Also psychologically, once you incorporate it, it's going to feel much more like a failure to fold it again than if you just had a website up and running and say, oh, I tested it, tried to validate the idea, apparently because of this and this reason, it probably doesn't work. That's why I'm going to test the next idea. All right. But one of the key things around considerations, whether to incorporate and when, is the intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And let's assume that we're talking about a tech startup, life sciences and others, that's even more important. But if you want to develop, let's say, an algorithm or a software, and then you want to transfer it into your, into your company, of course, there are also tax considerations, things like that. But how would you protect yourself from the beginning or, let's say, early on, so that your idea doesn't get um, stolen? One thing that investors always look for is to make sure that all the co-founders sign a a waiver and an assignment of IP, that really the IP is in the company. Right. And that should be done as early as possible, because if one co-founder decides to leave and maybe not on good terms, it may be difficult to get him to sign this assignment of IP rights later on. And then you have a red flag for an investor which they will use to lower the price or not invest at all. For the protection of the idea, it always it is this difficult to protect an idea. And I also tell people, usually it's not the idea that's really what is worth something, it's the execution of an idea that's much right. more difficult and much harder. And I've also been to startup events, especially in the US, where they say, hey, don't care about protecting your idea. It's not the idea what it's about. It's about the execution. And nobody's going to run away with your idea and do it simply because you told them to do it. It's much more important to get feedback on the idea. Okay, understood. So if we turn the page to fundraising very quickly, obviously a lot of people try to raise equity. Convertible notes are very popular. Where would you see are the main pros and cons of those types of instruments for fundraising usually it's wherever you get the money you take it but of course there are better forms if you can get the typical financing in the beginning is friends fools and family 
and there the terms are usually very favorable. Your aunt is going to give you 10 or 20,000 without asking for all the reporting and board seat. Liquidation preferences. <laughs> Liquidation preferences, exactly. So that's very friendly money you can get in the beginning, but right. when things get real and you need uh, hundreds of thousands or millions, you will have to negotiate with venture capital and that's going to be a lot tougher. In terms of the differences, the convertible note is great in the beginning where you don't want to set the valuation yet. You can defer the point of negotiation of evaluation. It's always very difficult for a startup without any revenue, often without any assets, to say, oh, well, this is worth now 500,000 or 5 million or 50 million. And with a convertible note, you can defer that negotiation to a later stage when a professional lead investor comes in. How much later stage do you think? Because I talked to someone who said, look, um, yes, obviously that works, but still within 18 months, you need to have a reality check. Again, negotiation for the startup, it's great to have a five-year term on the convertible note. I've seen 12 months very recently, which I find very short, mm -hmm. because once the convertible note becomes due, you usually don't have the money to pay back. And then the negotiations are much tougher on the valuation than if you, you have an actual financing round. Right. So 12 months is very short. But yes, 18 months, 24 months, that is probably market at the moment. Okay, understood. Now, you, you alluded to co-founders, you know, of course, the relationships can be complex, the things are changing. How do you set the legal framework there that um, it's efficient, but also, you know, you protect, let's say, the idea is above the individual egos. Mm -hmm. So you protect the uh, execution of the idea and the business can go on, even if one of the founders or two decide to move on and do something else. How should you do this? And also, what should be the interplay versus employees? Mm -hmm. Some people also say, look, it's a small company. A lot of people talk about the team and we are family, this and that. But there is a huge difference between co-founders who own mm -hmm. the majority of the company and employees who you potentially get the slice if there are early employees. Mm -hmm. So two things, co-founders and, and the dynamics between them and then co-founders versus the employees, what are the key things to be aware of and set up in your legal framework so that you maximize your chances of survival? Mm -hmm. Sure. With co-founders, many people underestimate the amount of conflict that exists between co-founders. There's hardly any business we've seen without any significant co-founder conflict. I always tell the people the analogy, it's like living together in the same flat Everyone thinks they clean the dishes more than the other guy. And that's just the human brain. You always feel, oh, I'm actually worth a bit more than the other guy. I bring in this and this, and he just brings in that. It's not fair that we split 50-50. Or these discussions are so frequent between co-founders. And what we push for are two things. First is that the co-founders really speak to each other before founding together about their expectations, about what each of them is going to do and about what is the actual fair valuation. And once they reached, after a hard and tough discussion, a consensus, this is much more likely to last than if they're just going to shake hands and say, yeah, yeah, let's do 50-50, we'll figure it out as we go, we're best right. friends anyhow. So talk about it, have a deep discussion about it. And then the second thing is uh, have a shareholder agreement 
where you speak about eventualities and have the option to buy back shares in case one of the co-founder leaves. There's nothing worse than a company with 50% of the shares and owned by someone who's not even working in the company. Anymore. And would you warn people against, let's say, just two co-founders and rather have three? Some people say that uh, two co-founders, that could be quite dysfunctional. On the other hand, if I remember my political science course, uh, I remember one thing, which is uh, the politics starts with three people. Yes. So what do you think is, is better or you, you just go with the flow? I think in any format you can have disputes. Okay. Two or three, four. I think it's important that you have persons that communicate openly, that you trust and that have a culture of being humble and thinking, oh, actually the other guy is doing more than I do and being generous. I think if you have those traits in a co-founder, then you will avoid a lot of dispute. And the relationship between co-founders or majority shareholders and the employees, is there any one key message that you, you could share? One thing we've seen is that a recent statistic is that American startups share much more of the equity with their employees than European startups. And we see a trend also in Europe of giving more shares to the employees. It has multiple benefits, of course, you don't have to pay them as high a cash salary. So you're usually cash poor and equity rich in the beginning and you incentivize them long term. So that is something I think more startups should consider and they should also consider giving more equity to the key employees and then retaining talent is key for any startup. Understood. So let's turn into board considerations. And on one hand, you have situations where apparently the founders come and they look for the board because they say, well, I wanted to raise money and people told me that I need to have board and I need to have some gray hair and mm -hmm. that's all I want and I don't want them to tell me anything how I do things around here. Mm -hmm. However, in Switzerland and in many other countries, the board is ultimately responsible. It's number one. And number two is that it's a, also a resource. So why wouldn't you use it? So... How would you go about selecting the board so that actually you maximize what the board can bring you, but also they are supportive of you, mm -hmm. right? So it, it's a balance between cheerleaders mm -hmm. and also then maybe having a disruptive board. I usually advise startups to be very careful and considerate before adding people to the board because they do have an important position and a lot of quite a lot of power. and. Startups can quickly uh, spend a lot of time on managing their board. One great alternative to appointing board members is simply have an advisory board. Basically having a board that has no legal function as such, but looks great on your PowerPoint slide to investors. You can put all professors and big business names on a slide with an advisory board. It's much easier to get them signed up because for them it's no personal liability risk and they don't have to control over you and you don't have to report to them as much. Right, understood. Let's talk about the, the reality of the startup world and VC investing as well, where wherever, wherever you go in the world, the 90% of the startups will not make it, right? Mm. So in legal terms, that basically means they will go through bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. There are obviously different stages in different, uh, different countries, in Switzerland or in the US or UK, but um, first, when to trigger it, Mm -hmm. how to do it, and 
what are the key considerations around employees, of course? The main driver for this is the board, because the board is ultimately liable to make sure that liquidity is guaranteed, or if there's no liquidity, that restructuring measures are taken in a timely fashion. Right. When it comes to employees, mostly that's the biggest expense of startups, the employees' salaries. We always advise to have short notice periods. In Switzerland, they can be as short as one month. So you can lower your salary expenses quite quickly. And that should be before you actually haven't enough cash on the bank account to pay salaries. Because that's where it gets dangerous for the board, because you may be personally liable if you haven't started to restructure early enough. What often happens is that towards the end, you only have the co-founders with a lot of equity that are left as employees. They can forego their salary payments. And of course, with other employees that are in there, you can also, also find different solutions because usually the negotiation is either we go to bankruptcy and then you probably don't see anything or we try to restructure it somehow. You take some shares or equity or another form of payment and you, you may get another two, three months of working and you can even look for another job on the side. And if we get through the slump, if we get another investor on board, we can continue. Right. So let's turn the page and think about the optimistic scenario here. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we are on the way to have a unicorn and not a small one, but the real one. Mm -hmm. So obviously there are different exit routes that are available. People used to think about IPOs. Now mm -hmm. we see that um, it takes a lot longer and people keep their companies private for a lot longer. But ultimately, whether you do sell a company, say to a trade buyer or you IPO, most likely, I think in Switzerland, you probably go for a sale. What would be the key considerations that you would like to tell founders so basically they get a fair deal? One thing I'd like to put in there as a third option, and as we're on the fintech podcast, is one that's going to come in the future, is the tokenization of assets as an exit route. Because I think the IPOs, as you mentioned correctly, it's become less and less interactive because the the amount of administrative burden once you're publicly listed is enormous. So more and more companies decide to go private or never go public, which is a pity because the public doesn't have access to these beautiful stories anymore. Instead, they sell to private equity, where then the, the company is held private. And as a third and future way we're working on as well is to tokenize the shares and have this as a way for co-founders and employees to sell their shares to the public through a share token offering. Of course, to have a good deal, we've seen in the US more and more founders that have voting shares and retain the control over their companies, like Mark Zuckerberg and the WeWork founder made headlines by also keeping a lot of the control of the company that is something you can do, of course, as a founder to retain control, but still be a public company. And then that's the advantage of going public. It's more likely as you founder to retain a lot of the control. If you do a private equity sale, usually you're fully integrated into another company. If it's a strategic purchase or if it's a private equity purchase, then you may have a bit more control. It really depends as well as you as the founder, what do you want? Do you want to keep managing the company or do you really want to have an exit, cash out and get out? 
Thank you very much, Christian, for all your insight. And I just have one question for you. Where do interested parties reach you? And what kind of people are you interested in? I also know that you do a lot of events. You provide trainings. Some of them are free. How can people get in touch with you? You can simply book free consultation on lexer.ch. We have a monthly meetup called Legal Tuesday that you find on the Meetup app where we talk about HR matters, about startup funding or whatever topics people ask us about. And then we schedule other events. We're doing soon in March an event with other startups to show them a bit how is a startup success story, uh, what are the options, what are the service providers and so forth. Feel free to reach out. We are really focused on tech, fintech and digital companies, both from early stage startups, but we also have corporate startups or listed companies that have questions around any digital slash legal topics. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Rudy.